Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're back with set number three. I'll take this moment for another quick plug, plug of the bookshop in the corner. Books are available at very reasonable prices. Authors are still around to sign them. Now, our next reader is poet and creative writer S.K. Perry. She views the world with compassion. She runs creative writing projects that, that develop emotional literacy and explore mental health issues, memory, and healing from violence. Her latest book is Let Me Be Like Water. It's her debut novel. Please welcome S.K. Maybe I should put it up a bit. Maybe. How's that? Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Hi. Hi, um, I'm Sarah, but I can't tell people that I'm Sarah Perry because then they're really disappointed when I'm not Sarah Perry, um, the other one. Um, but I am Sarah Perry, uh, and my book, Let Me Be Like Water, is about a woman in her early 20s whose partner dies and it takes place during the first year of her grieving. Um, So I'm just going to read you an extract from about halfway through. At the house I clean on Tuesdays, no one is ever in. I have my own key, and there's always a mug and a tea bag out for me on the side with a check. I've only met the lady who owns it once when she interviewed me. Beyond that, I only know what I've pieced together from the house. It's completely spotless, with no clutter or clues to help me. All the drawers and wardrobes are kept locked shut and the rooms have mirrors where I'd expect pictures to be. I've got used to it, but at first it made me feel uncomfortable. Walking on the cream carpet in my socks, I felt like I was the first person making prints in the sand after the tide's gone out. I wear plain clothes to work there and put my phone on silent because if I don't, it makes me jump when it rings. The ceiling in the hall is high and there is a round clock on the wall that looks like it should tick, but it doesn't. It's a blue sky day, cold but sunny, like the winter is slowly letting go. Outside, shop fronts belt out music and the people milling around clutch cups of tea that seep heat into their hands and make them feel hopeful. Inside, the house makes me feel furious. I switch the lights on in every room and hoover the floor as though I want to bruise it, sucking the carpet hard with the nozzle and slapping it down again. I push it into the skirting boards, making it thump. The house pushes back. We're hurting each other. I go upstairs and sit on the bathroom floor. The tall window opposite the bath lets the sky in. From inside, the blue looks blank and heavy. I take off my socks and put my feet down on the bathroom tiles. They're cold. I look around that room, the bath sat empty like a huge stomach, the curtains light, like they should twitch and jerk in the slightest breeze. The house is always comatose though, they hang limp. A fly groans somewhere near the back corner of the room and I feel like the air is dry enough to crack. I can smell the cleaning products I've poured into the sink and the toilet that I've used to scrub the bath. I stand up and put my feet into the tub, switching on the tap and letting the water wash over them, climbing up the ankles of my jeans. 
I sit down on the edge of the bath, take off my clothes and slip in. I lie there on my back with my knees up like I'm giving birth. I haven't put the plug in and the water mostly drains away, but small puddles linger and nestle in my pubes. I lie there, angry, and for a good few minutes I think about touching myself. I want to come in that cream house where I don't feel like a person, and I move my hand down my stomach and between my legs. I start to move my fingers slowly, but I'm tired, and I have to put the hoover away. I sit up and turn the tap off. The water drains away, but I stay sat there. I'm damp now, and it's cold, so I get out slowly and pat myself dry with a hand towel. It's thick and luxurious. It makes me feel worn away. In the bathroom mirror, I'm surprised I still look the same. I thought maybe I'd be smaller or more see-through. I don't look different, Sam, but my skin doesn't feel anything except the cold anymore, and I think I'm disappearing. I'm scared, and something in me wants to push against it, to move faster than is safe. I want to find places outside my body where I can sit and be nothing except the wind and the grip of someone else's hands. I'll find them in a bar. I'll know them because they'll be lonely like mine are, looking for a body to remember how to feel with touching everything a bit too hard. I'll pinch my skin between fingers until it's blue, like water is when it lies flat beneath the sky. I'll lie flat beneath a stranger and be nothing but limbs. I need to finish up so I clean the bathroom again. Then I switch off all the lights and start to walk home. I choose a road that I don't know and then take every first left turn until I'm lost. Sometimes there isn't a left turn for a while and I start to jog like I need to find one soon. I don't know where I'm going. I think I want to turn back. I'm tired and this seems to have gone on for too long. But at some point I find a pub and I go in and I order a bottle of wine that I drink on my own. I order a whiskey Coke and then another, and then I'm in a taxi. I think someone else must have phoned for me, and the driver asked me where I want to go. She's a woman, and I find that surprising. I ask her to take me to the sea. She says, which bit? And I say, wherever's nearest. When she drops me off, she won't let me pay, and she gets out of the cab and asks if I'm okay. I look at her. I want to ask her for a hug. Is there anyone I can phone for you, she asks. So I give her your number, and she rings it. It's just cutting out, she says. Are you sure you got it right? I run away from her then, as fast as I can, down to the sea and along the front. I climb over the groins and keep running until I know where I am. Then I sit and stare at the water. In the morning, I'm hungover and covered in scratches. I go to the bathroom and kneel in front of the toilet. When I'm sick, I wonder if letting go always has to hurt this much. I don't want to let go of you, though, Sam. I don't want to let you go. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sarah Perry, ladies and gentlemen, S.K. Perry. Our next writer has a unique perspective on the world, having lived in most of it. Jill Johnson has lived in Southeast Asia, Europe, New Zealand, has owned an editorial cartoon gallery, a comic shop, involved in a graphic novel publishing house, and two degrees later, with a family and five businesses under her belt, she has taken all that and condensed it into a, her debut novel, The Time Before the Time to Come. 
ladies and gentlemen, Jill Johnson. Kia which in Māori means hello. Um, my book is uh, based on my Māori heritage, so it follows six generations of one family beginning 200 years ago um, in pre-European contact New Zealand. And I'm going to read a, a very short bit um, from the story of the great-great-grandparents. Eddie Forrester was 47, too young to die. Before dawn, he had risen, dressed quietly, and left the house. He knew he was not a well man. His chest pained him. He was breathless most days, and the numbness in his hands was becoming troublesome. On mornings like this, when the air was chilly, he liked to walk to the top of the hill behind the farmhouse to survey his land. He walked slowly, his breathing laboured, feeling the cold air rush against his teeth, enjoying the changing colours of the landscape, his landscape. It had taken almost a year, but finally the farm was established. The routines were in place, and the men no longer needed instruction, but carried out their duties with autonomy. The dairy herd was healthy, and the milk quota was creeping towards break-even. The date was June 1926, and the bite of the depression was gradually eroding his health. The year before, he'd had to walk away from his failing forge in Taranaki, shift his family 200 miles north, and begin again. Day by day, with the passing of each unproductive month, he'd let his brightsmiths, strikers, and apprentices go, and the weight of the guilt as he'd watched each man gather his family and possessions and set off in search of work had caused his health to deteriorate further. It was all he could do to keep his wife, his wife Elizabeth and their five children fed and clothed. But in the end, the diminished Ford could not even do that. Eddie had sold his assets, his anvil and crucibles, fetching an eighth of their usual price at market, his beloved horses sent to the knacker's yard for glue, He'd kept one ox and the cart upon which he'd loaded the bare essentials to establish their new household. And he'd allowed Elizabeth, her bear, her mare, and the gig, knowing how she valued its respectability. With the meagre proceeds of the sale, he'd bought a few acres of cheap swampland on the outskirts of a small town called Fokotani in the Bay of Plenty. He told his wife that they would graze a dairy herd on its lush grass. The milk would be plentiful, and they would prosper. He had not told his wife that the land was often knee-deep in flood water. He'd waited until she could see this for herself. Eddie pulled a handkerchief from his pocket and wiped his face. He was still three years from 50, but he felt the exhaustion of an old man, physical and mental exhaustion. He wished he could sleep, but his arrhythmic heartbeat kept him awake at night, thumping out its, er thumping out its er erratic tattoo so vigorously that his whole body shook. He laid the handkerchief over his knees and idly stroked the creases. Spread out below him was the wide plain of drained swampland. Behind him rose a range of mountains. He looked down at the farmhouse built with his own hands, 
and those of his manager and friend, Matthew O'Rourke. The white clapboard house was not as grand as the other farmhouses in the region. Its diminutive single-story frame was roofed with corrugated metal sheets in various stages of rusted decay, giving it a patchwork appearance. And a patchwork house it was, rustled together for materials the previous owners had left scattered about the place. However, it was a roof over the family's heads and the mismatched chimney pots sent two pleasing plumes of smoke into the sky each day. He could see a thin wisp now and knew that his wife Elizabeth was awake and starting breakfast at the range. In the distance, he could see Matthew bringing the cows in for milking, limping beside them, slapping their rumps. They were too far away to hear, but he could imagine Matthew's whistle and the lowing of the animals and the sound of hooves on cobble in the yard outside the parlour. He, he could almost smell the scent of fresh grass and muck and the heat from the animals' bodies, their breath condensing, forming droplets around their nostrils. This was what had drawn Eddie to farming. The swish of a tail, the shudder of a flank, the nudge with a stick to keep the herd moving, the union between man and animal, man and the land, man and the elements. He took a deep breath, breathing all, breathing in all that he had created over the past year, and began the slow walk back down the hill to join his family for breakfast. Thank you. There are some who say that poetry is the purest expression of written language. I don't disagree. Poet Stephen Clark has poetry in his bones. He's been responding to his life's events since he was a boy, writing poetry. Recently, finding it was, uh, well, maybe didn't pay well enough, he's gone commercial, as he says, and has gone into prose. However, I think that's great. His first book, Love and Blood. His second book, a collection of short stories, which he will showcase for us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Clark. Yes, Ellie. Hi. This is a short story. It's pretty self-explanatory. June the 6th, Juno Beach, Normandy, France, 1944. We crossed the horizon in formation at exactly 6 a.m. The biggest ever seen invasion in the history of man had begun. Jimmy, a carpenter from Dublin, told his son Sean in later life. I was in command of a landing craft, he said, and I was on the bridge. On the deck was two tanks and 500 Canadian troops. I held the rank of Chief Petty Officer, Special Boat Services. We had been at sea for 36 hours awaiting our orders, our coordinates, the time and place of our landing, the best kept secret in the world. But the invasion had been delayed for 24 hours. For the previous three months before that day, hundreds of thousands of us 
had been in intense training in the lockdown along the south coast. The special forces amongst us were training in unarmed combat and how to kill a man silently in eight seconds. Then my orders cracked on the radio. You will land on Juno Beach at 6 a.m. at such and such coordinates. Do you read me? Aye, aye. Then the orders followed to take position, to make formation with all the other attacking craft. It is then that I knew that we were ordered to be in the very first wave. No one could tell your father anything, Lily told Jimmy. Lily's, Lily, was Jim, Lily was Jimmy's wife, Sean's mother. Sure, didn't he try and run off to Spain and join the International Brigade against Franco, if you don't mind? And his mother, a devout Catholic, she nearly had a seizure. They wouldn't take him because he was too young. And when he came home, his mother had a fit and had the parish priest come round and give him an, exor an exorcism. But then he went over to England, building wooden bottom minesweepers as the war loomed. Then after Dunkirk, he joined the Royal Navy. Throughout his youth, he swam, rode, cycled, boxed, and was always very clever. So he rose through the ranks very quickly. The Navy taught him deep sea diving and underwater welding. And when the ship was holed by torpedo in the Atlantic convoys, him and his mates would jump over the side in diving bells and do a temporary, a temporary weld in the middle of the ocean and save the ship. He never said, Sean said. The real men never do, said Lily, except maybe at the end. What about the SBS? He never mentioned that before, inquired Sean of his mother. The special boat service was formed to facilitate the D-Day landings. They were looking for highly intelligent combat engineers, Navy commandos, Marines, Navy SEALs, that type of thing. Jimmy was invited to join. After a secondment, he asked me to marry him. We had been courting for, a few, for some time, and I said yes, and we got married almost straight away in Western Road Church in Dublin. But then I never knew where he would be, or what port he may come into for snatches of leave. So I moved to Birmingham. You can get from any port in Britain to Birmingham. I found digs and got a job as a seamstress. Then your nanny Molly came over to join me because she knew I was lonely. And she got a job in a bullet factory. What about Granddad Johnny, inquired Sean. Oh, well, Johnny was in the first one. He'd been in the sun. He was on leave in Dublin on Easter Monday, 1916, in khaki uniform, when Molly was running guns and ammo under her petticoats through the barricades for James Connolly. He got him into trouble with the rebels. We'd got away. Back in the Somme, he lost a finger. It got shot off. He got a shilling a week pension for it. However, the lifelong pension was transferable, and he lost a lot of the poker game. He had enough, so he stayed at home. What was Birmingham like for the two of you, asked Sean. One of the things that sticks in my mind most is Lily. In the tightly packed, back-to-back, terraced houses, at 7 a.m. we would look out the window, and all you could hear was the sound of motorbikes driven by the telegram boys. 
And sometimes a screeching of brakes, a sharp knock at the door, then the wailing. Jesus, then the wailing. Land London, land loomed in front of us, Jimmy continued. The big guns of the Navy vessels beyond the horizon pounded the coast. The defense guns on the coast pounded everything. We came in under intense fire. I got seat from the bridge into the craft next to us. A young soldier threw a panic attack. His commanding officer drew his pistol and shot the boy dead through the face. Don't let anyone ever tell you differently. Every single man that day crapped himself. The ramps went down and half the boys I brought in were dead before they got out of the water. So then we reversed out to the troop ships, loaded with more men and wave after wave of troops came in. Then I landed with the SBS and the Marines. We were looking for wounded amongst the bodies. We took the dog tags off the dead and covered our bodies with our ground sheets before the oncoming tanks rolled over and squashed them. Of course, each of those dog tags would mean a telegram boy somewhere. I found a man alive and summoned two Marines with a stretcher. And we got him on the move. And I was on one side of the stretcher and a shell went off on the other. There was nothing left of the three of them, not a shoelace and not a scratch on me. At the end of the war, I was summoned to my commanding officer. Jimmy, he said, I'm so pleased to tell you, you've been awarded a commission. The brass want to send you to Trinity in Dublin to get a master's in engineering and to make you a chief engineer on a Royal Levy ship for the rest of your work in life. What did you say? asked an incredulous Sean. Well, replied Jimmy, he already had a bottle and two large whiskies on the desk, so we knocked them back. Well, sir, I'm going home, I said. What? And to do what? He said with two more whiskies. I only came to help you boys fight the fascists. I'm going home to do proper work, carpentry and drinking. And I promised Lily that I would stay alive so that we could make babies. In that case, Jimmy, take your gun and ammunition home with you. You might need it. We'll give you a safe passage. And Sean says to his mother, so when the invasion began, weren't you really terrified? She replied, the telegram boy didn't come. Stephen Clark, ladies and gentlemen. And now, Yolanda Christian, British, Portuguese, Chinese, a mix which inspired her debut novel, The Happy Sunbird, a dark, acerbic, salutary tale of ancestral roots and exotic lands marked by the Opium Wars. Yolanda Christian. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll read way over halfway, and Holly entered Dostra Medios is in Hong Kong. Does my voice sound okay? Good. The gangway was lowered, ropes secured, the bell rung, the gate opened, passengers swarmed onto the ferry, 
50 cents lower deck, 70 upper deck, international cruise liners, pleasure launches, green and cream ferries and barges jostled in the waters of Victoria Harbour. Cheeky said that the air was cooler on the peak and it had been the place to live ever since the British moved in and the Taipans built their summer houses. Dear Cheeky, she enjoyed going to the one and only cafe on the peak. Jolly, I drink milky coffee and watch some birds get nectar from hibiscus. They are pretty jolly, like hummingbirds. The train emerged from the shade of the Hilton and crept up a steep hillside. The cafe was there, a small red cafe defying the passage of time. Holly Enter positioned herself among the flowers, sipped coffee and watched the birds, green, yellow and blue. They hovered over the hibiscus and pink orchids. The nearest bird wasn't afraid. It emitted a metallic trill and pretended to be a big fat bee. It was showing off. Its tongue was long and grooved. Bushy hairs extracted foam from the flower's stamens. Now to find the highest spot. Here it is, 1,300 feet above sea level. When the plane landed at Kai Tak Airport, I didn't realize it was Kowloon and that Kowloon's a peninsula and a part of mainland China. I didn't know Nathan Road is not Hong Kong. It's Kowloon too. And Hong Kong is an island. Macau is miles away over there. I thought these places were one piece of land. The Japs invaded. Who knows what the residents felt, bombs whistling through the sky. The British, Canadians and Indians were outnumbered. The British surrendered on Christmas Day. The Meccanese were spared the worst of it, except some were unlucky. Great Auntie Valda. The tram returned to the Hilton. King Prawn in ginger and garlic beckoned. The waiter, dressed in black and white, smirked at the British woman dining alone. Chunking mansions, 11 in the evening. East Asia dancing on the walls, alive with flickering neon lights. An insect scurried by, deep crimson blood pumping up and down its cellophane body. It was the size of an earwig and jelly bean in shape. She buttoned up her blouse to keep the marauder at bay tucked the ends into her jeans and pulled the cotton sheet over her ears. The dorm light came on and then off again. Holly Enter turned over, back to sleep. The door creaked and the light was back on, awake again. It was the Mexican, a streetwise man with shoulder-length black hair, very handsome. He unbuttoned his check shirt and invited Holly Enter to sample his torso. She looked away, 
his jeans dropped. Coins clattered and rolled across the floor. He switched the light off, clambered into bed, and sent it thumping into her bed. She hauled the sheet over. It held her ears, her eyes, her breath. It was stifling. Love, when will I find love? When will I find it? She pushed the question away, tried to be rid of the bugs crawling over her body, hot and sweaty, sucking blood, nestling in the folds of her clothing, and begged the crane to appear. The mother crane strode through the wetland. A red crown and snowy white feathers tipped in black. The mother crane came closer and closer, drowning her in the well of its yellow iris. The bird lowered its gaze and began to pluck out the insects. Safe, safe. She stroked herself, adding comfort. Her body arched and sank. The Mexican jolted up, twisted his neck and glared. The cotton sheet blocked out his angry face. Dawn, the noises of Nathan Road started up to greet the day. The door handle rattled. It was the Mexican, simmering. He fiddled with the handle, shook it. He pretended to close the door. He was waiting for her. <laughs> Thank you. There's a bookmarker which is available. <laughs> And it will tell you about the happy sunbird, which will eventually be released. Thank you very much. That's it. Brain food, ladies and gentlemen. And now, a word from our sponsor. Just kidding. Our organizer. Zelda. Um, just for the avoidance of doubt, I'm not exactly a sponsor because I'm too poor. Uh, so I haven't put any money in, but I just want to say one minute of thank you to Sharon for doing the bookstall and Sheila. Big them up. Thank you to Barry, who's come all the way from Canada and taken a momentary respite from publishing one of their most important newspapers just to entertain us. Thank you, Barry. Thank you to Andy for ensuring it's not quiet during the break. Andy Carstairs, if you need any really quality vinyl, he is the man to talk to. Seriously. Thank you to Stuart for putting the banner up, making sure all the, everything that needs to be organised is. Thank you to Tile, who We wouldn't have had any sound if it wasn't for him. Uh, thank you to the bar staff and the pizza people. Actually, the Hootenannies supported this event for six years. Six years of free literary events for Brixton. I think that, that's a round of applause. Thank you to all our wonderful writers, which, and Rebecca and Stevie, the wonderful librarian who will date stamp you on the way out, so be prepared. Uh, 
It will always be free. It's a level playing field for all writers. If you want to be at a future event, info at brixtonbookjam.com. Approach us. We're not fussy. But you have to be good, okay? But we don't care if you're published or not, so long as you're interesting. Okay, you can all fuck off now. Come back not on December the 3rd. You can't just night. fuck off yet, because don't fuck off yet. We got to say the next Brixton Book Jam is the first Monday in December. Did I say the first Brixton? The next Brixton Book Jam is the first Monday in December. Third. And most of all, we'd like to thank all of you. Now, uh, I promised my daughter in Canada I'd send a selfie. Thank you very much. Keep on reading.